AI with Sally, a podcast that takes a closer look at some of the most interesting technology stories on artificial intelligence and machine learning. We'll hear about the latest in hardware and software that has a big impact on the world of AI. I'm your host, Sally Ward-Foxton. In this episode, I'll be talking about some of the most interesting things I learned about the latest data center AI accelerators at the Hot Chips conference. I also had the pleasure of interviewing Hot Chips keynote speaker, Synopsys CEO Art de Gois, who told me that using AI to design chips will lead to ASICs, including customized and personalized chips, becoming much more attractive. You can hear the full interview later in this episode. But first, let's talk about some big AI chips from Hot Chips. Graphcore presented an overview of the architecture of its second-generation IPU. This is a chip with more than 1,400 compute cores designed for AI training at scale. One interesting point from Graphcore CTO Simon Knowles' presentation was that Graphcore does not use HBM, high bandwidth memory, unlike high-end GPUs and a lot of other large-scale accelerators. Simon Knowles explained that GPUs and designs like Google's TPU, for example, try to solve both memory bandwidth and memory capacity simultaneously with HBM. Graphcore has taken a different approach. Here's Simon Knowles. IPUs are unusual in not using HBM, high bandwidth DRAM. Instead, IPUs use a combination of large on-DIS RAM and low bandwidth remote DRAM. The foremost requirement of main memory in an AI computer is that it provides sufficient model capacity. Capacity determines what can be computed. Bandwidth just limits how fast. Superhuman AI will likely require models with very many terabytes of parameters. HBM has a serious cost problem at that scale, and the IPU architecture provides an alternative. Graphcore has been pretty explicit so far that its offering competes on a performance per dollar basis. Cutting HBM out of the design, along with all the expense related to things like its high-tech packaging, Instead, going for a combination of on-chip SRAM for bandwidth and remote DDR4 DRAM for capacity makes Graphcore's IPU a lot more economical. Knowles' analysis had Graphcore's DDR4 DRAMs at around one-tenth of the cost of HBM. Another large-scale AI chip company to present to Hot Chips was Cerebrus, the company with the chip that takes up an entire wafer with its 850,000 cores. Cerebrus have made a memory extension box called Memory X, which is a big box of DRAM and flash memory. You can plug the Memory X into the Cerebrus CS2 system, which has as its wafer scale chip, and suddenly you get the capability to run the biggest AI models in the world, think GPT-3 and bigger, up to 120 trillion parameters, which the company says is more than can fit in the human brain. Part of how they've done this is by switching execution modes so that weights are stored on the memory X and streamed onto the accelerator chip, while the activations are kept stationary, the opposite of what they were doing before. Clever pipelining means the latency performance is almost like the external memories right there on chip. An added bonus is that this execution mode allows Cerebrus to take advantage of sparsity in the weights. This includes things like unstructured sparsity as opposed to block sparsity, and dynamic sparsity, which emerges during the training process. This is something that has never been done before, so definitely want to watch if you're interested in AI training at that kind of scale. There were plenty of other data center AI accelerators on the menu at Hot Chips from companies like Qualcomm and Chinese startup Nflame. 
But one particularly interesting design came from a US startup called Esperanto. I spoke with Esperanto founder and executive chairman Dave Ditzel, who famously co-authored the paper The Case for Risk with David Patterson in 1980. As Ditzel's a long-time risk supporter, it shouldn't be a surprise that the design Esperanto has been working on is based on customized RISC-V cores. In fact, it's by a long way the highest performance commercial RISC-V chip to date, and amongst the biggest RISC-V design ever, with 1,088 cores. It's an AI accelerator targeting hyperscale data centers, in particular workloads like recommendation, which are very important to hyperscalers, but which are really tough for accelerators to accelerate, to the point where the vast majority of recommendation models are still run on general purpose CPUs today. Esperanto has been working very closely with hyperscalers for insight into their requirements. Here's a clip from my conversation with Esperanto's Dave Ditzel. We have our main computation is done by a core we call our ET, uh, the Minion core. It's a full 64-bit RISC-V core. Uh, it's a fairly simple in-order core because it's the real focus of this, this core is to be extremely energy efficient, right? And the, the, the basic computation is not just RISC-V uh, integer core, but we actually have our own attached vector tensor unit one for each core, and then we put 1,088 of those on a chip. And this is not just some RISC-V core we've gone and gotten from some university or from university students who have formed a company. Uh, actually, what we, Esperanto is formed by a lot of very seasoned risk chip designers. These are people who have been designing risk chips for 30 or 40 years. The leaders in Spark, MIPS, DEC Alpha, uh, the, uh, the chief architect of the Cell CPU works with us. I mean, we really had a, a, a very different kind of crew. And what we said is, look, most of the RISC-V stuff is out for embedded, low-end stuff. Let's show them that RISC-V can do high-end. And we'll show them what really seasoned CPU designers could do here. Esperanto's approach is very different to other data center inference chips. For a start, they use six small chips rather than one huge one. The company's secret source is in its aggressively energy-efficient design. Clock frequency and voltage were reduced to the limits to get within a power budget of 20 watts per chip, and the chips are intended to be used six at a time on a glacier point accelerator board. Here's Dave Ditzel again. So what do the other guys do? I, you know, they build one giant hot chip. They build the largest reticle-sized chip they can do, right? And it's it's not the world's most powerful chip. It's the, the chip that takes the most power, right? Um, um, so one chip uses up the whole power budget and on one chip, they have a very limited number of pins. And so they have to go to things like HBM memory to get very high bandwidth on a small number of pins. Uh, but you know, HBM is really expensive and hard to get and high power. And so, okay, you can do that, but we're going to propose that there's really a better approach here. Okay. So the better approach Esperanto is taking is rather than one giant hot chip, Think of computing on a card, but being able to solve it with multiple low power chips. So if you can make each of the chips low enough power, you don't blow the card budget, you could sum them up, but you got to get your chips to be each really low power. And that has lots of advantages. So compared to one chip that has limited I.O. because they, you know, you can only fit so many pins on a, on a package here, uh, that limits your memory bandwidth. What by using multiple chips? The performance, the number of pins, the, the memory capacity, and the bandwidth all scale up as we add more chips. 
if you have a highly parallel problem, which AI is, you can do this. You couldn't do it in the past for, say, running an operating system or something else. That was a very tough thing to do. But AI is a, uh, enough more of a highly parallel problem that, that this can actually work. One thing I found surprising about Esperanto's chip is that for an inference chip, it uses the same kind of precision as a training chip might. It can run algorithms in 8-bit integer, 16-bit float, and 32-bit float. This was a surprise because inference chips tend to talk about integer throughput only. And the floating point unit takes up a lot of space in each minion core. Why, why do we need this if the chip isn't used for training? Dave Ditzel was clear that the decision to support floating point was very much based on a realistic assessment of hyperscalers' needs. The accuracy is very important, and there just wasn't enough accuracy in 8-bit okay. uh, to do that. And so uh, there's that. And if you look at what they're doing today, actually, uh, getting these programs to run at all is incredibly difficult. And you would be, I mean, shocked. Most of the inferences going on in those million servers is still 32-bit float. Really? Yeah. Okay, that does surprise me. Intel, Intel has added 8-bit capability to what ABX3 fairly recently. Yep. And a lot of these guys have not bought those new CPUs yet. And even if they had them, the time it takes to convert all of their software over and do the numerical analysis to know how much they're being affected in accuracy is tricky. And they have a limited number of programmers to do all of this stuff. And they, they literally told look, we, just, we don't want to take the time. This, you know, we have this piece of, you know, we're going to run all this stuff. And the core piece, we've converted to 88. But we have 700 other programs we've got. They're FP32. And no, we're not going to convert those for years. So you damn well better run them. <laughs> and I, I think that's more the attitude it takes. It's not that they couldn't be run in FP16 or in 8, right? Okay. But... They're just not going to take the time to do it. And it's not necessary. And it's a, it's not that much performance. What's the cost benefit for us porting this program? It's only 1% of our execution time. If you already run it well on FP32 and the program works, we're off writing other new programs. We're not going to go back and rewrite the old programs. The CEO of EDA company Synopsys, Art de Gois, gave a fantastic keynote speech at the conference about some work Synopsys has been doing with its DSO tool. DSO stands for Design Space Optimization, which is what they call Design Space Exploration when it's done by AI. Over and above DSO, Synopsys has been working with the customer to give AI access to other parts of the chip design process. So not just the physical layout, but also to microarchitecture decisions like clocking schemes and even letting it optimize the application software running on the chip. The result was a design which used 25% less power than the best a team of human experts could do, and it produced this result in a very short time. I had the pleasure of speaking with Art just prior to his keynote presentation. I started by asking him whether chip design will ever become totally autonomous, or where does he see the future of AI and electronic design automation going? You know, I think it's useful to come to basics, right, because in many ways, I consider that you know we cracked the code on opening a whole new phase you know, of how design is occurring, and, and I can I think say it with just a little bit of credibility because 35 years ago we cracked the code and it changed design right, and and the the similarities are uncanny, and of course at that time it was uh, 
okay, here's synthesis for real production use, not sort of, you know, uh, academic papers and so on, which, by the way, we build on. So we always stand on the shoulders of giants. So credit mm -hmm. is actually a very broad pyramid. But, but what was interesting uh, then is that we, we went to designers that had literally slaved for many, many weeks on some, some set of, of gates. And then in a couple of hours, we came back with, you know, 30% smaller, 30% faster. And at that time, those were the only consideration. Power was not even in, in the picture and many other things. But that, that was sort of the duo. And the reaction was always the same. Can be true. It can be true. And they would go away and we would hear nothing from them for two weeks or three weeks. And then they come back and say, you know, I checked and I checked and I checked. And it is correct. The design, the circuit is correct. And then we have the opposite problem, which is, oh, this must be magic. Therefore, it can do everything and it will run the governments of the world. You know, that, that type of thing. But, but what, what, what was interesting is where maybe just a few percent we're thinking this is dangerous taking my job away. The absolute majority said, this is great. I can run with it because now I can do much more. And not only do I think it is one of the two ingredients, the other being verification, that essentially made the digital paradigm explode compared to custom that never had that type of automation. It is that already then, uh, and I'll be careful with the words, but you know, we use a rule-based system. Rule-based systems are considered AI. So yeah, now we can take some credit for that. But in all fairness, completely fair, you know, a rule-based system had many problems because it would get better, you add a rule, it gets better, you add another rule, and then you add another rule and it gets worse. And now you need meta rules to govern the rules. Yeah. Long story short, now we're 35 years later. And uh, of course, AI has penetrated our world already in the last five, six years substantially. And a lot of kudos to uh, you know, Google and others that have really brought home that pattern matching can actually be done in a reasonable time frame, right? That, that is, in super simplistic terms, you have deductive reasoning, if then else, you know, algorithms, maybe with some heuristics, and then you have pattern matching that says, can you recognize something? You put those two things together and every one of our tools has AI in it today. Every one of them. And most of the AI is used to actually tune the heuristics to make the tools better. And in some cases, massively better, not a little bit, but a lot. What is different about DSO is we're not talking tools, we're talking design flow, which is many different steps and the interaction between those steps. Now, in, in, in order to do that, th there's a, another 10 years of work before that, which is how do you take all these tools and you fuse them together so that they can do multiple things at the same time? And, and, and if I take a step back that 35 years for further analogy, most people think that synopsis you know, drove synthesis. But that was already fusion because the synthesis itself had built-in timing Okay. which had not been done before. And then we had another really cool thing, which is we could read up the data from the technology. With other words, the synthesis was going to go directly in the technology of choice. And, and, and so that was sort of a mini fusion between synthesis, timing, and technology that, of course, became completely vital because the technology kept becoming more complex. 
And uh, at that time, uh, it was LSI Logic and Toshiba were the lead ASIC vendors. And that, that feels like a term from way back when, which it is. But today, you, you have the same, right? You have not only multiple providers of silicon technology, you have also multiple nodes. And if you don't know that one node is better or worse for timing in this way or, or power in that way, of course you can't optimize. It's very relevant. The building blocks you use are very, very relevant. And so what is, what is so powerful now is DSO is sitting on top of this design system that has evolved for over 30 years and now is getting a, a layer of a brain, so to speak. And that brain says, you know, uh, the human is very good at making certain architectural decisions, but I'm really good at dealing with 100 million things. The human has a hard time dealing with 100 million things, not in, in aggregate, but when there's one of the 100 million that screws it up, it screws up the other 99 million, right? And, and, so, and so you can see that the combination of helping the, the, the designer move up to be more and more of an architect is not any different than 35 years, have the designer move up to say, you know, I can now may deal with bigger problems because certain pieces are being solved in a way that's even better than what I could do if I had infinite time. And, and so to, to me, the, the, the similarity is so interesting because we have been the beneficiary or some degree the enabler of this unbelievable wave of Moore's Law. And, you know, I have heard so many times, well, you know, designers just kept up with Moore's Law. Yeah, yeah, uh, let me flip that around. Technology has just kept up with what design can do. And so I, I think uh, you know, EDA and certainly Synopsys is, are co-responsible of making something extraordinary happen. And it, it's really cool to be on a team with simultaneously people that drive the state of the art of new transistors. And of course, now there are two new things coming there, which is, you know, gate all around. Of course, yep. you can handle. And then you get, uh, you know, this whole notion of multiple chips abutting and stacking, which is, I think, a booster pack of, for complexity, right? So, so, so now we get to what we have done. And the first results really came out about 18 months ago, because uh, uh, once we had sort of the system working, time to result. Uh, was the thing that improved immediately. And, and you know, uh, I always look at everything we do and look like at that for literally the entire existence of Synopsys in three dimensions. Quality of results, time to results, and cost of results. And if you if you write to your marketing segment of your, your, your uh, readership, you would say, oh, that means better, sooner, cheaper, right? <laughs> Simple terms. But, but interestingly enough, that trio applies to many things in life. So it's very powerful. And, and you know well that in the early days, quality of results meant one thing, speed. Cost of results meant, meant area. And then uh, power came in. And power pretty quickly became thermal. And because there were two types of power. Well, do I have batteries that are big enough for my cell phone? Yep. Or do I have cooling that's fast enough to get rid of the heat, right? Yep. And, and, and half a dozen of other requirements uh, came in. 
And, uh, and of course, that makes this optimization problem so much more multidimensional. And therein lies the power now of AI, because AI has an ability to look at many things at the same time. Now, it may take a while for it to learn, but the fact is it can look at where you have placed things, how you connect them, are there hotspots, are there bottlenecks, uh, what if you move this one transistor, oh, disaster, it screws up everything else, so don't do that. Or a bigger question, which is, and that's pretty exciting because we've just been able to do that in the last few months, what if we automatically change clocking schemes? Well, that should get your attention because what I've just done is move from the strictly uh, a sort of physical domain into what are really microarchitectural decisions, right? Yeah. Yep. And your earlier question of, uh, are we going to run the governments of the world? No, you didn't ask that. But you know, where are we going? Where are we going? The earlier question is really answered by saying, we're now adding slice after slice after slice after slice of capabilities. And... And, but wanting to build on a very solid foundation so that you have to think of the EDA system as essentially an estimator. It constantly estimates how good will this be, and it tells the AI system, oh, you know, uh, uh, wow, this got bad. And the AI system said, damn, I should not do that. Uh, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, right? But, but obviously, we're dealing with a search space that is astronomically large. And you probably have seen some of these uh, descriptions of, oh, here's the chess search space, uh, 10 to the whatever. Uh, and then here's the Go search space, 10 to the whatever more. Uh, and then, uh, and then the, uh, uh, the Google paper is sort of on the placement uh, problem. We are on the real chips problem. We are, uh, we are on the industrial strengths, meaning you're going to tape out and the, better, the thing better work because otherwise you just blew 10 million in, <laughs> in cost, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, rubber meets where rubber meets the road. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, even far into the future, humans are still going to be involved in the design process, right? I mean, we should think of AI more like it's not taking over the design; it's more like at the next level of automation, like it's a tool that we can use, right? Yeah, it's, in this case, it's a it's a super tool because it sits on multiple tools underneath. But that is absolutely the way you should think about it. And, you know, if you think about it like that, you are part of the people that, that understand or believe in exponentials. If you think of it as just sort of, uh, you know, an improvement, then you're essentially on a linear curve. Well, great, you know, I can do a little bit more. Uh, and, you know, if you can do something in half the time, theoretically, you can do twice as much. But if you can do something in half the time and it gets better and you trust it, you're going to decide, I'm no longer going to do these things. I'm going to focus on the next level up. And by the way, there's, a, there's an extremely big imperative opportunity to think now the level up. Because the way I like to describe it is, you know, for, for Moore's Law age, it's been a technology push, right? Meaning we come out with better technology constantly lower power, more transistors, higher speed, now do something with it. And of course, the world has done an enormous amount with it. Now suddenly something has changed. And what has changed is two things. 
One is way more data coming in. The other is machine learning is actually getting some real results. I, it's, it, it's beyond promising you can get some good stuff. You put those two things together, and now you have every vertical market segment, so we're not talking business, saying, wow, you know, I have a lot of data. I wonder if I can be a little smarter. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in agriculture or in, in routing, you know, a thousand trucks driving around in, in the U.S. delivering uh, stuff or if you're into you know, detecting melanoma by looking at multiple layers in the skin, there's a lot of data there. If you can infer something of higher value, you have just changed a vertical field. And it takes only very, very little amount of change to have an enormous economic impact. Actually, Credit Suisse is estimating that what I like to call smart everything has a, has a 40 plus trillion, trillion was a T, opportunity space. Well, that's the same as saying on, on top of our technology push up, we have a pull solely from all of these market segments. And these market segments will very quickly become very impatient, which is, oh, I got something good. Why can you not make it 10 times faster? Yeah. And, you know, success is invariably multiplied by impatience because if you have success, that means you can differentiate yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing this already, which is that each vertical segment is starting strategies to say, I can do something with this. Can you make it now 10x, 100x, 1000x faster? Now, guess where that lands? Those damn chips, they're so slow. And why does it take you so long to design them? Yeah, we've been there before, right? Yeah. Exponentials. Yeah. Exponentials are the mathematical form of impatience. <laughs> yeah. Right. But at the same time, if I rapidly, rapidly reduce the amount of time it takes to design a chip oh. from this kind of standard 18 to 24 months that it is now, if I cut that in half or even less, what is the effect on the rest of the industry? What's the effect on fab capacity? What's the effect on the rest of the supply chain? Uh, what, what's going to oh, happen? Good news. Good, oh, news. good news. Okay. You know, and you know, just to be clear, I, I'm not saying that a shortage is good news. It causes a lot of problems. But I can say that a shortage puts full attention of things that are valuable. And you know when you when you suddenly have you know this the uh, uh, I was going to say the CEO of the U.S. the president of the U.S. holding a chip in his hand and saying you know this is infrastructure I don't know that he fully understands what he's saying but it is sure a statement that if you don't have that you're behind and, and so I, I think you, the way you're framing it is actually right on if you can do something just for argument's sake in half of the time. Yeah. And you can do something that in addition is better than what you could have done manually with fewer people. What that says is we're now going to clearly do chips for each of the verticals because the verticals are different. You know, if, if you want to di di diagnose melanoma by looking at skin things, you don't need to have that in a fraction of a second. If you want to diagnose if it's a plastic bag or a dog in front of your car, you bet you need to have that really fast. Otherwise, the plastic bag is toast. <laughs> it, 
it could be worse. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I'm using I'm using wacko examples here, but you know what what I'm talking about is that with this desire of can you make my thing ten times faster with a, a special chip, the my thing has different needs for each of the verticals, and, and so this is where simultaneously to all of this. Our world has clearly moved from scale complexity, which is you know the simple form for for Moore's law, to systemic complexity that says, oh, on top of way way more scale complexity and faster compute and all that. By the way, I also want uh, functional safety because it's going to put in a car. Oh, and by the way, I also want SLM, silicon lifecycle management, because I I want the chip to tell the car four years in, in driving around, I'm not feeling so good. And if the chip says that, the chip needs to say, well, do, do you park right now or do you write your testament or you know, what's going to happen? Right? <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I shouldn't laugh really. Um... No, but you know, if we don't have some humor, it's, it's all bits <laughs> and bites right now. For sure, for sure. Um, okay, so... With this rapidly accelerated design process, we're enabling more customized chips, more personalized chips. Are we going to end up with this ASSP ASIC model becoming really much more attractive, much easier? I mean, I know there are other factors as well, like economies of scale, but are we going to see way more ASICs, ASSPs in the market? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think that that's where, where we are is, you know, uh, some people would say this is software-defined chips because it is the what you want to run on this that determines what the criteria are for success. Now, in some ways, that's always been the case, except that when you have general compute, you run a lot of different things, right? And, and by the way, one of the most difficult things is power optimization because if you run thing A and B and D, it works just fine, and then you you run thing thing Q, and out of nowhere, after five minutes, it has a horrible spike of of uh, of uh, energy because you didn't match the actual workload profile of that app to the chip. Well, if you can do that, and by the way, on Monday I'll show the first example of optimizing for for power that is driven by running the software on top of it. It's a very, very difficult problem because, as you know, you know, power starts literally in the physics of the transistor and, and goes all the way in every layer, all the way to the characteristics of the app. Yeah. And, and, and therein lies the challenge for, for the DSO optimization is how do we even know what that software characteristic will be? Well, uh, I'll, I'll show that we have... We have uh, uh, an example, actually, how it improves things. And this is so cool. I, I cannot tell you how cool it is because I've known for 20 years, people always ask, can you do power estimation? Can you do power estimation? And leakage power estimation, we can do pretty well because it's not that much a function of the software, right? But dynamic power is extremely difficult. And so you can be in the ballpark and that's okay. That's actually okay. But, but it all supports... Uh, I think your assertion that ultimately these chips are defined by the app. Yep. The app says, here's what's important to me. Yep. 
And I don't care about you also winning chess games or you know, doing something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I care about, you know, the watering of my fields. Uh, yeah. or, you know, that, that, and being able to optimize for vertical domains, I think, says these chips are becoming more important in the, the forward outlook of the, of the sub-markets, right? Of, of the vertical markets. Yeah. And, you know, some of them will struggle with it because it was so easy to say autonomous driving, you know, how hard can it be? Yes, more data, we'll just do it, right? Except, you know, it, interestingly enough, the difference between the plastic bag and the dog, you know, when they just fly, float in front of your car, you know, it's hard to tell, right? Yeah. It's, as we've just been discussing, it's not just accelerating the, the timescales of the design process, it's better as well, right? We're talking about powers, huge power savings potentially that could be made uh, equivalent to uh, kind of going forward one to two power uh, process nodes, uh, process technologies potentially. Uh, do we think AI and the design process can effectively help us prolong Moore's law or keep us at the uh, the larger or the bigger process nodes uh, for longer? There, uh, yes, yes, yes to all of those. Okay. Uh, because, you know, and um, the way I've always looked at automation is that automation accelerates the most advanced, yep. but it also helps greatly the not so advanced. Yep. Because, you know, the, the most advanced are the hardest driver. They spend most of the money. Their differentiation is really at the leading edge. And as you well know, you know the, the 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 technology nodes have had a hard time delivering the same advance on the same time clip, and so uh, when you suddenly get the type of improvements that we can get, uh, you know there's a real question: Do you need to go to the next node? Now I know the the answer of the advanced guys. They say, well. Of course, I'll go to the next node and use the SO. <laughs> yeah, of course. Why wouldn't you? Well, these guys are, are race car drivers, right? We provide the car. And even when we go to them and say, hey, we've got this really fast car. It doesn't have brakes yet. They say, give it to me. Give it to me. I need to win. <laughs> I need to win, right? And right. So, so, so the state of the art is always pushed by the same people. And they, they will use anything they can get to become uh, more differentiated. And the differentiation could be in quality of results, but can also be in time to results, right? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the people that are using you know, N minus one, minus two, minus three nodes, they can greatly benefit economically from this. And then the third thing that I think is gonna be interesting to watch is, does this also enable, uh, like say hyperscalers or, or people that have not had the same history and training and learning uh, in design because it can automate steps that now you don't need a group of experts for. And I think that's going to be particularly relevant when we think about those verticals that can invest themselves in doing chips or at least being close to it. Thank you very much, Art de Goyce, CEO and Industry VIP, for the fascinating discussion on the future of AI-powered electronic design automation. If you're interested in AI accelerators, whether that's the data center chips we've been discussing here, or whether it's Edge AI or TinyML you're into, EE Times is running a virtual conference later this month, which covers all these topics. It's called the AI Everywhere Forum, and it's on September 28th and 29th. The program is put together by me, and it includes keynote presentations from IBM Research, NXP, 
ABI Research, Edge Impulse, IMEC, and many more. It's free to attend and you can register at www.ai-everywhereforum.com. That brings us to the end of the episode. Please tune in again next time to hear more news and views on AI, machine learning, and the technologies that enable them. If you're listening to this on the podcast page at eetimes.com, links to articles on topics we've discussed are shown on your left. AI with Sally is brought to you by Aspencore Media. Our host is Sally Ward-Foxton and the producer is James Ede. Thank you for listening. I'm really interested to find out, uh, you know, where you see this going. The kind of results that your team was talking about were pretty staggering, to be honest. They were pretty... uh, yeah. Uh, you know, the time frame it takes to do this design was rapidly condensed and the power uh, consumption in particular was was drastically reduced. I mean, with improvements, this this drastic, what is the effect on the rest of the industry and and how long before an AI can design a complete chip on its own? And, and what does the future look like for, for AI and in design automation is, is kind of what I'm interested in. How soon does DSO run all the governments in the world? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, the, the usual E, e times uh, beat, right? Exactly. So, yeah.